I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Hello, Jeff. I'm afraid Jeff's off this week, so you've just got me flying solo, which is obviously a shame in some respects, but for me, it means that I can talk about my make-your-own-sandwich shop idea without fear of being put in my place. I can bore on about cold water swimming without fear of being shut up. Uh, I can talk about my cooking similarly, but obviously it's a shame not to have Jeff here. We're hoping he's going to be back next week. I confess that I am in a somewhat of a binge watching of the morning show now last week i think off air uh, i was asking jeff about it and he was it's fair to say fairly skeptical because he said that series three began in outer space which is true not exactly outer space but about a space flight but i was behind on the morning show and i am consuming it it's my relaxation i i I don't i i think i've always liked these american media things i liked the newsroom which was an aaron sorkin thing which i strongly recommend for those who haven't watched it although it may i don't know how dated it may seem i think it maybe it's a sort of some kind of escapism and i did actually work in the media in america when i was 18 as an intern at the something called the mcneil era news hour anyway that is what i'm watching i cooked a I think regular listeners may know about my sort of lentil experimentation, shall I call it, cooking experimentation. I've discovered a red lentil soup, a New York Times recipe, which is quick. Because I think one of the issues about lentils seems to be that you have to cook them for a very long time. Anyway, red lentils seem to cook a lot quicker. It's a 40-minute red lentil soup recipe, which beats sort of hours and hours of malarkey, as Joe Biden might say. And I just made it today, Saturday, and I'm the only one who's consumed it so far, but it was fairly passable, actually. So that is what I've been up to. I'll, I'll talk a bit about cold water swimming at the end. I think that is those, those are my those are my sort of hobby horses, aren't they, really? Let's talk about what we're talking about this week. It's a really interesting subject, and it starts from the fact, really, that the people most affected by the climate crisis are going to be children and young people. And indeed, those not yet born. They've done, obviously, less than anyone to cause it. And they are quite often the people with the least voice in what we should do about it. And the people we're talking to today are trying to give young people a voice, children and young people a voice. Scotland and Ireland have tried to do just that. And we're going to speak about those experiments in Scotland and Ireland with the people who were behind them, the sort of guiding forces behind them. We also have an absolutely brilliant conversation with two young assembly members, Mikey and Esther, and a young assembly advisor, Neve, from the Irish Children's Assembly on biodiversity loss. And honestly, it's a really great and illuminating 
conversation, it made me think a lot about, as I think about how we tackle the climate crisis, I think hearing the voice of people is incredibly important in this. Uh, And I'm a supporter of ideas around climate assemblies and so on. But it, it made me think about how do you get a proper voice for young people in this? And also it makes you think about what are the purposes of it? How can it either improve public policy, help young people to feel they have a voice in this really important issue? Anyway, it raises all kinds of interesting questions, and that's what we're going to be talking about shortly. My reason to be cheerful this week is about a visit I did to the tallest onshore wind turbine in England, which is in Lawrence Western in Bristol. And you know what's fascinating about this, and the reason I went there is because this turbine isn't owned by a company, a private company, or at least a private company you recognise. It's owned by the Lawrence Western community. It's basically a seven-year enterprise. It only just started spinning this summer. It started with two people in a pub saying, talking about renewable power. But the reasons for it, the motivation for it, is really about this idea of community wealth building, which was an idea pioneered in Preston by somebody called Matthew Brown, a Labour councillor, which is how do you build wealth and keep it in communities? And so what's fascinating about Lawrence Weston is that they got a loan to eventually fund the construction of the turbine and so on. But all of the proceeds, once they've paid off the loan, which will hopefully be relatively soon, will end up with the local community. And this could be quite significant sums. And they're already thinking about how do they plan the, to use those resources, helping to run the the new community centre they're hoping to build, improving skills for young people, insulating homes. And it's a really interesting model of clean energy community wealth building. And so I went there earlier on this week and, and it was I'm just really grateful to the people there for showing me around, talking to me about what they'd done. And also, as I think about the potential for a Labour government, how we could make a difference to have lots more Lawrence Westerns around the country. So that's my reason to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined now by Katie Reid, who is a children's rights and youth participation specialist. And Katie deserves some credit for us doing this episode, which we'll, which we'll talk about in a sec. Uh, Katie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So you are a long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. And um, <laughs> tell us about um, how this episode came about. Yeah, so earlier this summer, I was listening to the episode whilst out on a run. And at the end, I, I was stopped in my tracks when I heard that a listener had called in to say that um, she was involved in a citizens' assembly taking place uh, at a city level. And that she was really struck and quite concerned by the fact that children had been prohibited from participating, um, despite the fact that she felt personally this this was uh, imperative to having an assembly about the climate, but that they were unable to participate on the grounds that they were deemed too vulnerable. As I was listening to this, I guess I wanted to reach out because on a, on a cheerful note, we uh, in Scotland and also in Ireland have had the opportunity to participate and to facilitate assemblies with children and young people. And I thought it would be really great to have the opportunity to dive into this uh, and see what, what the possibilities are in the future too. Katie, tell us briefly about the history of children's participation in politics and deliberative processes like citizens' assemblies. Children's participation is is definitely not a new concept and also it's quite easy um for, for this to be 
often seen as something new and shiny and exciting. No, in fact, children have been actively shaping their worlds around them for, for many, many years. But I think as it's become more of a formalized concept over the last kind of 30 years, this is really because of the fact that their participation rights were enshrined in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, which all but one country has ratified. So it's the most widely ratified United Nations Convention. And But I think what we're seeing now is a real interest in how children's participation doesn't remain this kind of isolated entity. We don't talk about adults' participation in the same way. And that's where I think this rise of deliberative democratic processes is really exciting because it offers us an opportunity to rethink what does democracy actually mean and who does it involve? And and importantly, who is it continuing to exclude? And I think with children, you know, very, very few societies or places around the world have given children the vote. Um, And that's all under the age of 18. There are exciting shifts towards giving uh, 16, 17-year-olds the vote in some situations, Scotland actually being one. But children are still the most marginalized group when it comes to voting. If deliberative democracy is trying to create a new space for doing politics and democracy differently, um, I think this is a great time for us to also think about, okay, so how do we really make sure it reaches out all generations and that we use this as an opportunity to redefine what, what it actually means to be a citizen? Well, that's fantastic. Tell us a bit about your involvement uh, in these children's citizens' assemblies. Yeah, so I guess it goes back to 2020, a year that many of us will remember for all sorts of different reasons, when uh, I was working in Scotland, where I'm from, uh, for a wonderful organisation based there called the Children's Parliament. And at this point, the Scottish Climate Assembly was being established, and we were approached by the Assembly to facilitate a parallel process that would involve children to support the Assembly on its deliberation journey. And we, like the Adult Citizens Assembly, brought in 100 randomly selected children to learn about climate change, to to engage with the topic, to discuss their own ideas, and then to come up with calls to action. And there was no blueprint for this. I'll be completely upfront and transparent. Like, we really did have to draw from other examples of, of kind of national level and community level participation with children to develop something quite bespoke. I think for me personally, I really saw a unique opportunity unfolding. And something quite special happened because although the, the processes were initially quite distinctly separate and the children were to inform the adults in their deliberation, what we saw over time was actually the adults really began to see the children's process as, as one of kind of equal status to their own. And of course, that wasn't unanimous. There were some that had concerns about children's involvement in the process, given how this is quite an anxiety-inducing topic for children and young people uh, as, as well as adults. But what was really fascinating was by the end, the adults' recommendations, some of them vowed to like strengthen their own recommendations because the children had gone further. And so as a result, we saw this kind of intergenerational collaboration taking place, which was really exciting. That's so interesting. And tell us what ages were you of, of children were involved? Yeah, so in Scotland, um, the ages were 7 to 14. And this was... Um, because in Scotland, the Climate Assembly was from 16 and upwards, um, given that the voting age of Scotland is so 16. Give our listeners a sense of the kinds of things that the children were saying, recommending, concluding that, that sort of would be interesting and also influence the adults. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the 
the key recommendations or calls to action that came out from the Children's Assembly was around the banning of single-use plastic. And I remember adult assembly members saying how they'd been really struck by the fact that the children really reminded them of their responsibility to future generations when they were forming their final recommendations. And I think that kind of intergenerational component was really, really quite profound. And that also then sparked interest from others in hosting children and young people's assemblies and intergenerational assemblies more broadly. This example I just shared was about Scotland, but then this sparked um, a similar process that took place in Ireland. And this was focused on biodiversity loss. And uh, that took place um, last year. And we're coming up for a one-year reunion next month. And talk to us about the Irish um, example. Yeah, so the Irish example, from the beginning, it was really important that we established uh, an intergenerational team. So it was made up of... um, nine young advisors who we brought into the process, given that they had so much amazing knowledge and creativity and expertise in in these issues already through their own activism or their interests at a community level. And then a group of uh, children's rights, participation, biodiversity and environmental experts from Dublin City University, University College of Cork. And so we designed and co-facilitated the assembly, which brought 35 randomly uh, selected children from across Ireland, aged 7 to 17, to for two weekends where they learned about biodiversity, they deliberated the issues, and they also came up with calls to action, uh, which they presented to the minister responsible for biodiversity loss in Ireland. And as we think about the role of children in this deliberation and, and engaging in these issues, why do you think and this is maybe a very obvious question, but it's worth just teasing it out. Why do you think it's important to do the kind of thing you did in Scotland? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I think it's one that at a time where the climate emergency and the biodiversity crisis, the crisis of democracy more broadly is, uh, is being challenged and debated. I think it's really important that we're ensuring that the youngest generations are not excluded from these conversations. And that's because children and young people not only have the right to participate, they also bring such fascinating insights into what it is to be a child and what it is to be growing up in a world that they want to also be part of shaping. And I think it's also really important when we're thinking about how children are viewed, actually, societally, and how children are understood and the value that they 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 hold. And I think when we're looking at the kind of generational divide that we're seeing where there's a sentiment where like, oh, children will be the ones that save us. They, they are the ones that are standing up and fighting for their rights. Whereas children are thinking, why aren't adults doing anything? Why are they not acting? And we're seeing this kind of both are putting responsibility on the other. And actually, in terms of children's rights, ultimately, adults do have to take responsibility and act to ensure that they're safeguarding children's rights today, but also children's rights in the future. But I think what deliberative democracy and, and this, this wave, if you like, of deliberative democracy, what I'm always really struck by is that it's about bringing citizens together from all walks of life. And if if someone can arrive in a citizen's assembly as an adult without any expectation that they need to know about the subject, that they need to have been involved in politics, democratic processes before, I, I really struggle to find an argument um, that why a child, if, if not supported and facilitated in a, in a safe, meaningful and argue joyful way can also engage in in an assembly process like that. I think it really helps us to hear from genuinely diverse voices and it also helps to bring all generations to solve some of these massive crises that really require all generations to come together. That's so interesting. What would you say to those who say, well, either children are too vulnerable or don't know enough to be involved in something like this? What I would say is that 
we need to be open-minded and we need to challenge our, our own biases that are very societally ingrained about the amazing capabilities and ideas and knowledge that children have. And, and to be understanding that whilst, of course, we have to like protect children and ensure that they're supported and, and that these processes are facilitated in a really child-centered way, at the same time, children have the right to participate. And if we put up so many walls and boundaries that prohibit that, we're actually inadvertently compromising their, their rights to participate. Finally, I just want to ask you, what, what's your reason to be cheerful about the work you do and, and what it means for our future? Um, my reason to be cheerful, the thing that gets me up every day, is uh, just the amazing work that children and young people are doing, that the stories they're telling, the efforts they're making to to create a better world for us all. And I'm so lucky that my, my day today is is getting to speak with and listen to phenomenal children and young people that are just yeah, bringing so much joy and, uh, and hope to the world. And I'm really excited that you're going to also get to meet some of them today. Well, look, we are really looking forward to it. It's been a great conversation with you, Katie Reid. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So to carry on the conversation, I'm really delighted to say that we're joined by three young people who were part of, of Ireland's Biodiversity Assembly that we heard about just now. We've got Neve, who was one of the Assembly's young advisors, who's 17 from County Waterford. We've got Esther, who was an Assembly member, is 11 from County Cork. Uh, and we've got Mikey, who was an Assembly member, who is nine from County Wexford. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Neve, let's start with you. Can you tell us what that meant, being a young advisor, and, and what was the work you were doing? I can, of course, Ed, and thanks so much for having us all on today. It's very exciting. 
Um, well, being a young advisor, first, the first thing I have to say about it is that it was such a special experience. It was absolutely amazing. I was uh, doing a voluntary teaching plan during my year 10, but this was probably the best part of my entire year. It was just wonderful. I was lucky enough to be one of nine children and young people from around Ireland that got to help design the assembly and to run it when we were actually doing it. And I learned an awful lot from that because the assembly itself, that was something that's kind of set apart from other projects. It's not really done anywhere else. I haven't heard of anywhere else doing anything like it. So the fact that I was able to work with adults who were facilitating children, young people in voicing their opinions and in upholding their rights, which was a really key focus of the assembly. The fact that I got to help with that really meant an awful lot to me. I was helping to facilitate one of the workshops in to be specific, the climate change workshop. So that just involved talking to children, young people about climate change and how they felt about it. And also what they wanted the Irish government to do to help address climate change in Ireland and by extension, biodiversity loss. And how did you first get sort of involved with all of this and become sort of enthusiastic about this subject? Uh, it really all started when I was about 11 and I saw the Australian bushfires on the news and I was kind of worried about it, but, you know, I figured it was kind of all in hand under control. So I kind of stopped worrying about it. And then again, when I was 13, something else on the news and that really got me worried again. So when I was 14, one of the teachers in my school, uh, he runs a national network called the Irish School Sustainability Network. And I got involved through that. I became a student ambassador, also very lucky to be given that opportunity. And through that, I found out about the application process to be a young advisor for the assembly. And I just put my name forward. I really didn't think that I'd get it, but I was lucky enough to be able to be selected. So yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, Esther, let's, let's turn to you. Um, do you remember how you felt when you got invited to take part in the assembly and, and, and how did it sort of come about? How did it happen? Thanks for having me here. I was very excited because it's like this big life-changing opportunity that you get and you get so excited. And my dad found out about it because one of his colleagues told him about it. And then he put me in and then I came out and I, and I nearly screamed the house down. I was so happy. I can imagine. Because I have been interested in biodiversity ever since I moved to my granddad's old house. Because he's got a big garden in the back and it's and it's like huge and it's full of biodiversity. That's amazing. And Mikey, what about you? Do, do you remember how you felt when you first got invited to take part in the assembly? I felt very excited. I didn't think that I was going to get in. Because... Yeah. Well, there was only 35 people that were going to do it. My dad told me when I just got back from school and then I was just so shocked that I thought he was joking. And Mikey, tell, tell me, what was it like? What, 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 did, what did you enjoy the most about being involved with the assembly? Well, I really enjoyed the, na enjoyed the nature walk that we did because I learnt new species of trees and wow. our guide said, and showed us something that you should never be doing to trees, which is carving your name into the bark. And that's a quite important thing to say, isn't it? That it wasn't, you weren't all just sitting in a room having a conversation. You actually went and did this nature walk, among other things, didn't you? Yeah, we were definitely out and about quite a bit. I didn't think we were going to be out that much. Yeah, yeah. 
definitely. And what is there something, Mikey, that you learnt um, doing the uh, assembly that you hadn't known before? You mentioned the thing about the trees. In the assembly overall, when I signed up to this, I didn't even know that there was a Minister of Biodiversity. Yeah, so I've learned loads of it in this. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Esther, let's turn to you. What about you? What what was what was the thing that you enjoyed the most about the assembly? Um, as well, I've very much enjoyed the nature walks. That was very fun. And uh making the new friends and discovering that that we can have a voice. Kids can like have a say in what happens. One of my favourite parts, because I was one of the people that got to join the adults assembly, um there was nine of us and we got to talk to the adults committee about like what we did and what we wanted to be like heard and we gave our points and we showed them our posters and we told them what we worked on and they actually told me why don't you go to your local newspaper so I went to my local newspaper and they actually interviewed me and I was on my local newspaper called the Avenue. I had to try and explain what biodiversity was and to try and explain to my community and the people around me what happened at the assembly. And then I've been trying to get them to do a microforest. They haven't got to be back so far, but hopefully in the near future we can have a microforest in our local village because it can be four metres long and just that small amount of space can encourage a few bugs and can be a small biodiversity hotspot. And I gather, Esther, that one of the key messages that came out of the assembly was that we must treat the earth like a family member or a friend. And I think this was your idea. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I came up with the idea because in my head, the earth in a way is a living thing. It grows plants, it and lets us inhabit it. It has nature, it has, like, flowers and all that sort of thing. But So technically, it is living. And we wouldn't, in, in my kind of reference, it's like your friend spent months on an art project. Would you destroy it, if you get what I mean? And they gave it to you, especially. They let you have this opportunity to give it to you. But then you just destroyed it. So would we do that if we thought of the Earth as a member of our family or a close friend? It's really good. That's very well said. Neve, talk to us about your experience. You've talked a little bit about being an advisor in the Assembly. What do you think are the important things that came out of the Assembly? I think one of the most important things that came out of this Assembly was showing children and young people the power of their own voice. Because we're not just talking about biodiversity loss and climate change here. We are talking about children's rights. We're talking about their right to be seen. We're talking about their right to feel heard, to feel valued, and for their opinions to be given due weight. That was what we were hammering home here. It wasn't just about learning about these crises. It was about learning about what we, as the future, can do about it. Because that is what we're looking at. So we're living with everything that past generations have done to destroy the earth. But also... Anything that government leaders or world leaders bring in now into policy, we are going to have to live with when we're older. And the simple fact of the matter is it's not right if we don't get a say in what those policies and what that future world is going to look like. So as a young advisor, being able to help facilitate children in learning about the power of their own voice 
was really something that empowered me. I think it empowered everyone else. And it was one of the most beautiful things about the entire gathering. And what was the exchange with the Minister for Biodiversity like? That was amazing. We were lucky enough to be joined by Minister Malcolm Noonan uh, at our second assembly, assembly weekend down in Kalani in County Kerry. And he was amazing. I think sometimes, might be a little bit controversial to say, but I think adults sometimes kind of brush off the, the opinions of children and young people and say, well, they're inexperienced and they couldn't possibly know what they're talking about. It was the opposite with Malcolm. I have to be honest, it, was, it wasn't about taking a box for him. This was, I'm here, I'm listening to you, and I want to know what you'd say. Now, it's about a year since the Assembly um, met. I want, I'm wondering if there's been sort of follow-up and follow-through on that. Uh, my sense about that would be that we're being listened to, which is a massive revelation. I can't even tell you how big that is, because up until now, it has kind of been, if children and young people want to get involved, yeah, they can do it, but it's going to be through their own groups. It's not going to necessarily be a government-supported initiative. This was which is massive. We're only 35 children and young people as assembly members and nine as young advisors. But I think something that also needs to be said was that on our website, we also had a submissions page where other children and young people could get involved. This is going beyond the confines of the assembly gathering as such and beyond the confines of the team. This is going to whoever wants to tell us what they think and how they feel. They have that opportunity to do that and they will be listened to. Let me ask you one other question, all of you, which is what would you say to those adults who I don't agree with, um, who would sort of say, oh, well, you know, why do we need the voice of young people? We're the adults, we're the grown-ups, we know what's best. Well, I think that children need to say it because they're going to be the ones who are going to be living in that future and they know what would be good for them and all the other young people out there for the future. I think that children are more likely to come up with better ideas because they're the ones that are going to be living in that world. Absolutely. Esther? They say that they know it all because they've been on the earth longer. Just because you're older than us doesn't mean you know more. Because there's an adult out there that doesn't even know what climate change is and believes it doesn't exist. And then they're saying they're smarter than us who have been at an assembly and have talked about this with other kids that know their stuff. Neve, Mikey and Esther just summed that up perfectly. Adults really need to wake up here. We're not talking about, you know, should children be included? We're talking about they have to be included because it's their right to be. This isn't a case of do we want to do it? It's a case of, well, we have to. And it's the way that it's going to have to go if we want to see real change occurring. Because there is no way forward if children and young people are not a part of it. We're not going to find solutions because they're the future. Well, look, that is a great note to end on. You've all been absolutely brilliant advocates for biodiversity, for tackling climate change, and indeed for the idea of the Assembly. So can I say a big thank you uh, to Mikey, to Esther and to Neve. Thank you. It was an honour to be here. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ed. Now, to conclude the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Diarmuid Tawney, who is Associate Professor in Politics at Dublin City University and was the project lead for the Children and Young People's Assembly on Biodiversity Loss. Well, look, I have to say, Dimit, your thunder has been stolen by Neve, Esther and Mikey, but they did you proud. The young people who were involved in your project, I'm sure you would agree, were amazing. 
They were, absolutely. And I have no problem whatsoever with them stealing my thunder. It's, it's not my thunder to begin with. Uh, it's, it's really all, all their work. And it was such a privilege to be able to, to work with them. I know you, you spoke to three of them, but you know, behind that, there was, there were 44 in total between the, the members of the assembly and the, the nine young advisors. And they were just such an impressive and inspiring group of people to, to work with. It was really the most inspiring project that I've been involved with in my professional life. Demma, tell us just one thing, which is how did this process come about? Who was it funded by and, and what, what was the initiative that led to it? So it was funded by the department in the Irish government with the responsibility for uh, nature and biodiversity. They provided uh, the, the idea. They effectively approached the academic community in Ireland and asked for someone to step forward uh, and and run with this. And uh, I and some colleagues here in DCU and Dublin City University and in University College Cork put our hands up. But it was independent from, from the start. So uh, we, we were funded to do it, but then there was a, a very hands-off approach taken uh, by, by the minister and, and his officials. And how did you pick the children and young people? We used a, a process of sortition. I know from listening to previous yeah. episodes of this podcast that, that you're fans of, of sortition. Yeah. So we basically put out a call for expressions of interest. We spread that as widely as we could. And then we used a sortition process to, uh, to, to select uh, a random stratified sample that looks like the wider Irish population uh, of children and young people aged between 7 and 17, stratified according to six uh, characteristics, gender, ethnicity, geography, age, disability status, uh, and urban-rural. Because of the nature of biodiversity uh, and biodiversity loss, we were keen to get a range of voices, not just from urban environments or from rural environments, but but a spread uh, across uh, those different uh, categories. Now, let's talk about some of the key calls for action that came out of the process. What were they? So uh, I think we could spend a whole podcast talking about uh, the, the calls to action. There were 58 uh, grouped in seven themes. But then from those 58, we worked with the uh, children and young people, the, the assembly members, to try and crystallize um, six key messages. And I'll just give you a couple of those because I think they give a good flavor. So one of them was that uh, every decision must uh, take biodiversity into account. Um, so really placing biodiversity at the center of government policymaking. And another uh, was that children and young people must be included in decisions being made about biodiversity. So really, you know, mainstreaming that that principle of giving children and young people a say in decision making. You're a associate professor in politics. Talk to us at a principled level about why you think involving children is so important. Well, children are people too. They're, they're citizens as well. And just as we expect that uh, adult members uh, of the, the population should have their voices heard in decision making, those under the age of 18 should also ha have their voices heard. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that everyone's individual views uh, must be acted upon. And that wasn't the principle upon which we designed and, and, and ran the assembly. But it is the principle that every everyone's voice is important it seems a bit arbitrary to say uh, that those principles should apply to those over 18, but, but not to those uh, under 18. 
And a sort of level of theory of change. We're a year on, I think, from the assembly. What difference do you think it's made? So in a way, that part of the story has still to be written uh, in in a couple of respects. So about two two weeks after, uh, we brought uh, six representatives from the Children and Young People's Assembly to a session of the Adults Citizens Assembly uh, on biodiversity loss that that was meeting last uh, autumn to give uh, an account of the work that they'd done and to outline the key cause to to action. As a result of that, the Adults Citizens Assembly uh, included in its headline recommendations that government should take account of the recommendations from the Children and, and Young People's Assembly. So all of that has now been delivered to government. But why I say that the story is yet to be written is because... Uh, the government will shortly be publishing a new national biodiversity action plan. The publication of that strategy actually was delayed so that government could uh, take account of the recommendations from both the Adult Citizens Assembly and the Children and Young People's Assembly. But it's, it hasn't yet been published. So we, we, we haven't quite seen that uh, the extent of that follow through. But uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we are going to be bringing uh, all of our members of the, the Children and Young People's Assembly, uh, our young advisors, uh, and all of the adult team together for a one-year reunion uh, in mid-October uh, to be held uh, in, in Dublin. Minister Malcolm Noonan has agreed to join us uh, on the afternoon of, of that reunion, meet with the Children and Young People uh, again, and report back to them on the work that he's done uh, on biodiversity over over the uh, the past year. Clearly, some of what we're talking about is quite gloomy and quite complex. What were some of the challenges of engaging young people on that, and and how did you overcome them? We built a program of work that was designed to be fun and engaging. Some of your listeners uh, might have seen. For example, photographs from a citizens' assembly. I mean, it, it, the, these processes are typically these are the, the ones for adults. They, they're typically in people sitting in a room, basically. Yeah, yeah, a big hotel function room. Yeah, lots of powerpoints. We were very clear in our minds from the start that our our assembly had to look radically different to that. So, so we you know, we built in games, outdoor activities. We were blessed with good weather, which you can't take for granted uh, in Ireland. Um, but lots of outdoor activities, a nature walk, which was a real hit with the, the children and young people. But also we were very keen to ensure that it was solutions focused. So, for example, we had one session where we gave an overview of drivers of biodiversity loss uh, across uh, a number of key themes. But we followed that up straight after with a session on solutions so that we weren't leaving the children and young people just kind of dwelling on all of the problems of the world, that we were giving them the tools and, and the ways of thinking about the problems of biodiversity loss that was very solutions oriented. My colleague Katie, who you spoke to, she said at the outset, our, our aim for the assembly should be to ensure that all of the children and young people leave at the end of it with a smile on their face. And so that that philosophy, I think, guided our approach. Where do you think this is going to go in the future in terms of this as a way of engaging people? Are there going to be more of these children and young people's assemblies? Is it going to be part of future policymaking, future legislation? Yeah, so I'd like to think that we tried to create an inclusive process 
that was empowering for, for the participants and that it can serve as a kind of a template for, for future uh, initiatives to involve children and young people in decision making. I hope that it'll inspire other uh, commissioners of citizens' assemblies to consider doing something similar on other topics and that uh, in, in the future, greater attention uh, and emphasis will be given to the voice of children and young people in decision-making. Well, look, I'm sure our listeners will be really, really impressed by what you have achieved. Dermot, Tawney, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Ed. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. A couple of things. If you have thoughts on what you've heard on the podcast today, please do email us. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We've actually got some really interesting, nice emails, which we're going to save for when Jeff's back. So thank you for emailing. Do email, do rate and review us. Nice ratings, please, because it does make a difference to other people hearing uh, about us and knowing about our podcast. And what, one thing just before we go, I wanted to sort of mention just because I have the floor, as they say, everyone knows that I'm a cold water swimmer. Uh, one thing that strikes me, and, and maybe most people who want to go cold water swimming want to commune with nature, but I like being able to listen to stuff. And I'm one of the few people who wears a set of headphones colloquially known as swim p3 players and most people don't even know about this but it was a podcast listener who told me about this because to be honest i've i'd found in the past swimming slightly boring it's less boring when you're in the open water and so i listened to podcasts and so on and i'm surprised at how few people use these so i just thought i would pass on that tip i find that it actually it's good in the colder water as well because it's something to distract you from the vets is relatively cold so i swam for 45 minutes today uh 17 degrees and the podcast kept me going i was listening to the ezra klein podcast so there you go i think that is all i am going to thank and hopefully i'm going to get this right i am going to do the credits that jeff normally does i'd like to thank our guests katie reed neve esther and mikey and Dermot Tawney. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. She gets a backup from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Ed Seed produced our music. James Deacon did the eye dance. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And our artwork was done by Henry Cole. I've been Ed Miliband. He hasn't been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.